We are, uh, by popular opinion and probably the need of the moment in some sense, going to be looking at eschatology for the year. Uh, we talked about that last week. Um, we are we are doing that. But as mentioned this morning, I wanted us to look and see what Scripture has to say to kind of back up the cart a little bit and see what Scripture has to say about um, leadership. And why do we do and trust? Why in the wide world of sports would we drag ourselves out of bed so early, get here at such a difficult time in the dark and the cold, uh, difficult for some? I know some of you, it's like this is sleeping in. But uh, why do this? Why sacrifice time on a Thursday morning? What what are we trying to accomplish here this morning? Um not only this morning, but every morning and in trust. It's great to see all you brothers, by the way. Uh, why would we do this? Uh, are we just going through the motions? Is, just, is this just something to do? Um, so bef- we introduced the eschatology study last week and kind of looked at a timeline, uh, the timeline of events. By the way, anyone want to give a shot at that? What are the timeline of events in the pre-mill understanding? I know it's early still. So we've got the church age. Adam Cassidy. What, 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 then what? Rapture. Yep. The pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And then? Yep. Yep. The Bema. 2 Corinthians 5.10. 1 Corinthians 3. That's the judgment for believers. Not to see if they go to heaven. But... Judgment for deeds in the body as a regenerate person. Then what? Seven-year tribulation, right? Three and a half years. And three and a half years. We'll talk about why that splits that way. Oddly enough, I'm not just doing math. Different timelines, what happens. Then what? Yeah. Then Jesus returns bodily to earth. And the tribulation is put to a firm and a swift end. Jim, you got your timeline right there. Look at that. Good stuff. Um, And among other things, we have the divine restoration of Israel begins at the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, theocratic reign of Jesus Christ. Israel restored, saints resurrected, all believers resurrected. And then at the end of the tribulation, a little bit of an uprising, Revelation 28 and 9. And then the great white throne, and then the eternal state, Revelation 21 and 22. Briefly, we will take the entirety of this year, the season of entrust through May, to study all that, and it will take us that long. Um, and... Being that the Bible is about a third, a third to a quarter of the Bible is prophecy, it behooves us to know a third and a quarter of, especially in the times in which we find ourselves. A little bit of Matthew 24, 6 going on, isn't there? Where Jesus said in Matthew 24, 6, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, and the nations will surround Israel. As the time of Jacob's troubles, that's a term which the Old Testament uses to describe the seven-year tribulation, the time of Jacob's troubles draws near. 
what has happened in Israel. We, we did a study on this in our GC last night. Um, what is going on in Israel, how we are to think about that. Let me just say something about that real quick. I'll have a word of prayer. Um, good to see you, men. And then we'll uh, chat. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and your mercies that are new every morning. Uh, you have been at the controls of the universe. And we thank you. We thank you for this food. We thank you for the really the brotherhood, the fraternal we have here in Entrust. Uh, thank you for your grace that will go before us today and plow the way. We don't have to be anxious. We just have to rest and trust in you. Give us strength to do so. Thank you for the men here, those tuning in online. Father, may we be encouraged and built up because of this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just uh, maybe 30 seconds. Hey, Jake. Yeah. Um, whose land is it? It's Israel's, including this part right here, right? Pardon the not totally precise geography. The Gaza Strip. Um, this is Israel's, not because Israel's anything great, but because in Genesis 2, uh, 12, 1 through 3, about 2100 BC, plus or minus, okay? Uh, God said, this is Israel's. This is Israel's land. Later on in Joshua, uh, towards the, towards the end of Joshua, the land is parceled out to the tribes from the north, further north probably than it is now, over to the Great River, to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, and down almost to Egypt. And it's divvied up into the 12 tribes. You get this part, you get that part. Um, there's no other nation like this on earth where God has said specifically, this is yours. Right? It's just uh, nation geographical territories were acquired from various means, some better, some worse. It's just how... This is unique with Israel. It is their land. Israel, however, being the chosen nation ethnically from God, this doesn't mean all Israelites or every guy with a Jewish passport goes to heaven. It means they're chosen to be the vehicle through which the Messiah will come. They're not more righteous. You're not saved if you held or hold an Israelite passport. Nevertheless, God does say in that passage in the Abrahamic Covenant, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will what? Curse. So that, that is the Abrahamic covenant still in effect today. So it behooves a people, a nation, or whatever to not curse Israel, but to bless them. Okay? God makes it clear in Deuteronomy 7. He says to Israel, I did not choose you because you are more righteous or greater in number, or better than other nations. I chose you because I chose you, God says. I decided to, so that you would be the nation, ethnically, through whom the Messiah would come, and to whom all nations will be blessed. In other words, every single person on earth can be saved if they believe in the Messiah, who happens to be God and of Israelite ethnicity. Okay? That's what's happening. Israel has always had people's crosshairs set upon them. That's always how it's been. Um, there have been many times where the Israelite nation has been attempted to be exterminated. One, 
one of which was the, by the Assyrian Empire. This is recorded in Isaiah 37, among other places, where you have the entire Assyrian Empire surrounding them and then surrounding them with their armies to kill them, and then God judges them. 185,000 are exterminated. If you look at a map of 7th century B.C., 6th century, 7th century-ish B.C. of the world, it's like in the, in the ancient East, right? There's, there's little Israel right here, Judah, actually. And then all of this, all of this over here is Assyria. The one, even secular historians recognize this, the one territory Assyria could not conquer, and, and they were, a, I mean, a titanic force in the ancient East, their, their empire. This is the one little territory they couldn't make extinct. And the reason is because God protected them, because as Zechariah 2, 8 says, Israel is the what? He says, he who touches you touches what? The apple of my eye. The apple of my eye. So as countries like Iran and many others, uh, Muslim nations have said, not all, some have said, we want to make Israel extinct and every Jewish person extinct. That will not be possible. Not because they're so great, but because of this, this, and this. It will not be possible. And we'll talk about some incredible things will happen concerning Israel during and at the end of the tribulation and at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Okay? So you need to be mindful, whatever nation or person you are, of the Abrahamic covenant. You bless them, I'll bless you. You curse them, you're going down. And and you're going to be cursed. And God will hold that promise true. Okay? Questions, thoughts? That's just a side note. There's no human, political, military, economic explanation for why Israel should still exist, this nation of 7 million people. It makes zero sense. People have had their crosshairs, their bow and arrows, their spears, and their RPGs pointed at them forever, forever. Because Satan wants to take them out, because they're the vehicle nation for the Messiah. It makes zero sense that they're still alive. Oh, thank you. You can just put that there. I I can leave it. We can leave it. (laughs) Train, the wheels are falling off here. (laughs) All right, 2 Timothy 2. So we will talk more about that in biblical eschatological deal uh, terms, excuse me, throughout this year. 2 Timothy 2. Let's actually start in verse 13 of chapter 1. What I want to do for the rest of our time, our remaining 45 minutes here, to talk about what are we doing here in trust? Why would we get up so early and deny ourselves an hour of sleep or whatever it is on a Thursday morning? Why would we do this? 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, Paul says, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Hold to the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And trust through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted, guard, excuse me, the treasure that's been entrusted to you. You are aware of this, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 
the Lord give mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord granted him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Verse 1, chapter 2. You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to these, to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And we'll stop there. Father, again, would you strengthen us, change us and encourage and build us up through your word and help me only say what is honoring to you and helpful for edification. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the late 60s in the first century. Uh, This hated sect, as it was known, was spreading rapidly around the Roman Empire. Some called them, them the those who followed the Nazarene, the Nazarenes. They came to be known derogatorily as the Christians. This is a derogatory name attributed to these people who were these. They were an offense to Roman society. They were offensive. They were you were a disgraceful, uh, an object of mockery and scoffing. And the, the robust, the proud, as they thought of themselves and were, the honorable society, as they thought of themselves, of the Roman Empire. You were a disgrace to Rome if you were a Christian. Essential to the Roman Empire, to its well-being, was sacrificing to, believing in the many gods of the polytheistic system, because these gods blessed Rome and the pride therewith. And, and, and here comes along these disgraceful individuals that believe in someone from this goofy little nation that Rome was overseeing. This guy who was a carpenter that was nailed to a cross, and you believe in him and say he's God and Lord. The Greek word that they had for Lord was kyrios. And you are only to ascribe to Caesar that term, Kyrios. And here comes these Christians and say, no, this guy Jesus is. Scandal offense. So much so that they found ancient graffiti in Rome from around this time with a guy nailed to a cross with a donkey head. Mocking this religion. And so Paul, writing his last letter as he's going to be beheaded, for being one of the leaders among this offensive sect, writes this passage to Timothy. He says, I'm on my way out. I'm about to die, be executed. And he writes 2 Timothy. And in this particular section this morning, he gives some divine directives on they're going, they're killing us. They have killed us. They are killing us. And, and the heat was being turned up in the Neronian persecution <laughs> at this time. And the, and the dark clouds of, of persecution were gathering over the Christians in the empire. It would, it would be illegal to be a Christian until about the year 312, 313. And so Paul says, they have, they are, and they will kill us. But here's how God wants us to spread one way, to spread, to multiply, to raise up men. 
because it is the men who are to lead. It's not if a man is called to be a spiritual leader, it's how is he doing in his respective sphere of life, whether he's 15 or 75 or anything in between or or older. How is he preparing himself to lead in the respective sphere in which he finds himself? That's the context in which this letter was written. This letter was not written in, in peaceful times, gentle breeze, culturally speaking, but a, a tornadic, really, storm, culturally. That's the context in which this letter was written. Paul says, even so, and maybe especially so, I want things like this to happen. I want men to be invested in, and I want men to be men. We talked about biblical masculinity last year. This is sort of a a subset of it that is an essential one. And so Paul, giving this to Timothy, you have to understand, Timothy was in Ephesus, and Ephesus was a, a terrible place. It was a wretched, pagan, idolatrous, sexually immoral Gender and, 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 and things like that were backwards in this place. They worshiped Artemis, Diana, all these other gods, and it was offensive to be a Christian. And so Timothy is struggling. There's problems in the church. There was a feminist movement in the church. There was, there was bad doctrine. Men were probably stepping back and just saying, well, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to rock any boats here. You know, I'll just kind of quietly step away. And Paul is saying, Timothy, as a young man, he was Timothy's probably in his mid to late 30s. He was young. He was intimidated, hence the words he said, which we read. And he says, you need to step up and pour into other men so that they too will do the same and not be ashamed in this cultural tide that is pushing in every direction against them. So three marks then from the text this morning. I would encourage you men to take notes if you're a note taker, even if you're not. Three marks of spiritual leadership. Three marks to be strong as a spiritual leader. Of course, the preamble to all this is that you would be saved. These three marks presuppose that you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not your own works or any other system to be right with God and to secure eternal life and the blessing of heaven for yourself but that you would trust in Jesus Christ. And from there now, a man's duty, these three things. Number one, spiritual leadership, number one, requires empowering from Christ. Empowering from Christ. We need to get, you need to get empowered from Christ. Verse one of chapter two. Spiritual leadership requires empowering from Christ. This is not, We're not cordless drills. We're not men who pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You need to plug in and get empowered from Christ. Look at verse 1. He says, You therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The Greek word there, be strong, and, and and, and the tense of the verb, it means to continually be empowered. Be unceasingly made capable and strong for a particular task, is what the Greek word means. Timothy, I want you to be made strong. I want you to be empowered. 
And if you notice there, it's the verb is in the passive tense. Be, it's be made strong is the idea. He doesn't say make yourself strong, but be empowered. How do you do that? Well, first, let's just observe that strength was needed for Timothy's task and for yours. Then and now, what you men believe, and if you're not going to hell, but you're going to heaven, the things you stand for are an offense to society. And if the current trend is any any indicator, that will continue to increase. Offensive. Probably, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but if history is any indicator, probably things will start to happen in our society where the things you believe or practice will be cloaked over and said to be some kind of like health hazard or dangerous for society. So more than just being told to wear a mask, You'll be required to do something much more consequential. I don't know. Probably something, things like that. Well, because how do we know that? Because that's often what has happened. Often, not rarely, but often that's happened in various societies across history, which then precipitates and gives a blanket green light to Christian persecution. It's not just go kill them. It's, oh, that, that's going to be harmful to the rest of society. People are made afraid, and once people are made afraid, they can be controlled. Right? We saw that with the recent experiment that began in March of 2020, before that. So Timothy and the church being under persecution, this, this cultural tide probably going in that direction, it was, there was a great need to be made strong. To be made strong. But it's passive, which means the strength, the strengthening needs to be done to us. Uh, which means we're to place ourselves in the stream of strengthening. It's like when you eat food, right? That strengthens you. You're not actually the one who's, you know, taking the protein and putting them into your muscles and putting nutrients into your heart and your organs. You don't actually do that. You know, you, you just, you just cram a New York City sub into your mouth and eat it and thank God for it. And then you are strengthened. You put yourself in a place, you expose yourself to elements that would strengthen you. That's kind of what is being said here. Don't be ashamed, he's saying. Look back at chapter 1 really quick. Uh, verse 5, he has to remind him, be reminded of the sincere or unhypocritical faith within you. I mean, he's having to remind him, hey, Timothy, you're saved. So verse 6, for this reason, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. 4, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Therefore, verse 8, don't be ashamed. He's trying to encourage him to be strengthened. Put yourself in the place where strengthening happens. Because it's so easy just to flow with the cultural tide, isn't it? That's much easier. I'm no a marine biologist, 
but I've, I've observed jellyfish. And they're a fascinating creature. Uh, we're told that they're actually not really good swimmers. These things that some of them have eight foot long, like leg, leg things that flow. And they're like an upside down bull. To me, the Lord was having fun when he made these. But I'm told, we're told they're not really good swimmers. That's an interesting thing. They live in the ocean, but they're terrible swimmers. They just kind of gently move their like bull body or whatever it is and float around. They're subjected to the tide completely. And if we don't obey this command in here, be strengthened, we will become spiritual jellyfish. We will become men, beta men, who just wherever the tide and the wind goes, that's, that's kind of we'll go. And there's a lot of temptation to do that because it's hard to be a Christian. But here the text is calling us to be strong. To go against the tide, you have to be strong. You have to be strengthened. It's, there's, there's, there are a lot of idols that contempt men. The idol to be, I kind of want to be a cool Christian. I don't want to be seen, I want to be seen as, I want unbelievers to say to me, wow, you're different than the other Christians. I like you. There's that idol. Not that we're to purposely be offensive, we're to purposely be faithful. But there's that idol. I want to be a cool Christian. I, I, I want to be hip and relevant and fashionable and still have my private faith. But we have to be real careful of that. And there are other idols too. So Paul tells us here, be strong. How are we strengthened though? That, that, that's, the, that's the key, right? How, how can we go against the cultural tide. Jay Gresham Machen knows, knew a lot about this. He wrote in 1923 as he was going against the tide. He said, quote, few desires on the part of religious teachers have been more harmfully exaggerated than the desire to avoid giving offense. Only too often that desire has come perilously near dishonesty, end quote. In other words, the idol of I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to offend anyone. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. How are we strengthened? Well, I think the Psalm, Psalm 1 is a helpful illustration. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand on the path of sinners, sit in the skeet seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. We need to plant our life by streams of water. The reason the tree in Psalm 1, its leaf, is green, does not wither, it yields its fruit in season, is because it's firmly planted by streams of water, so that tree is passively strengthened. Right? The tree just sets its roots. And then it grows strong. That's what's saying, that's what it's saying here. So the name of the game for men is the means of grace. That's the nutrients, that's the water you pull up from the roots to strengthen, to stabilize you. So that your leaf is green and does not wither. So you yield fruit in season. So that we're not spiritual jellyfish. The means of grace. Absolutely saturating my mind in scripture. Marinating in the Bible. Gathering corporately 
for meaningful, for active, not passive worship, where I'm actively involved. What's the difference between being actively and passively involved and physically present, Hebrews 10, 25 kind of corporate worship? What's the difference between that? You gotta see that, like, uh, you gotta watch sports, you're passively you're watching what's going on, you're not actively participating in the church. If you just show up and sit there and you're just kind of watching and observing what's going on, you're just passively observing, really. Actively, it's you're participating in singing, you're participating in serving. Exactly. Conversations and listening actively to the sermon, figuring out the product. Exactly. Yeah, I'm engaged. When I come, I, I meet people, I say hi, reach out to someone new. Right? I got a little bit of a spring in my step. If I'm a sleeper, there's a lot of, if, you know, if you're sleeper, you're Stan the sermon sleeper. Two things. If you're Stan, Stan the sermon sleeper, and I've been Stan. I've fallen asleep during a John MacArthur sermon before. Can you believe that? <laughs> That's how much of a Stan I am. But you do what it takes. Drink a coffee before. If you don't like coffee, drink a tea. Just do something. Slap yourself. Splash water. It's amazing how a guy can sit through three and a half hours of, you know, an Avengers movie on the edge of his seat. Popcorn, you know, not having to go to the bathroom. Or a three-hour football game. He doesn't fall asleep. Do two things. Pray for your dumb, boring preacher, number one. And number two, figure out how to stay awake. And I know it's hard. Okay. Actively involved. That was an excellent way to phrase that. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Engaged in singing, trying to think on the words, taking notes, whatever. Learning biblical doctrine, prayer, an active prayer life. Rick Holland, one of my mentors, used to say, is this the read your Bible more sermon? Yes. All sermons are. Keep reading your Bible. Yeah. I mean... First of all, Hebrews 10, 25, uh, 24 to 25, right? Uh, we would also we would go to James 1, um, you know, 20 to like 24. Yep, doers is the word, we're not just mere hearers. To be a doer means you're actively hearing, participating, so that I would go out and be a doer. Um, yeah, Romans 12, uh, 1 through 2. Uh, we would also go to Matthew the parable of the soils, 13, uh, 20 to 23. Make sure you're the soil that receives the word. You're not, not, not like wind over a rock, but seed falling into good fertile soil to be strong. Okay? Spiritual leadership, leadership empowers, requires empowering from Christ. Right? The means of grace, brothers. That, that's, it's, it's not complicated. It's not always easy. But it's not complicated. Private and and public worship, obedience, repentance of sin, confession of sin, using my gifts, serving, denying myself. That's how I'm empowered. That's how on the tree, it's not out in a barren desert, but by the streams pulling up nutrients, pulling it up so that I'm strong. And I'm not toppled over. Okay? Anyone want to add anything to that? Any comments? Okay, number two. 
spiritual leadership, number two, involves and requires, number two, entrusting to faithful men. Number two, entrusting to faithful men. Entrusting to faithful men. This is found in verse two. Spiritual leadership requires entrusting to faithful men. Look at verse 2, 2 Timothy 2. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the main verb here, the main command, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's another command here. Each of these has a command with all kinds of things surrounding it. The main command here, look at your text, entrust. From this command arises all the years of pouring into men that started with Paul and Timothy and the men in that church, and here we are today, and everything in between. This verse, we should remark, is not commanding apostolic succession as some have taught that it is. In other words, that that there's going to be like more apostles or bishops of Rome or any of that kind of stuff. Okay, this is apostles. The apostles appointed a new band of leaders called pastors and teachers. Okay, and it's just saying equip men, equip men. The idea is here not a particular like title, but the doing and trust. The Greek word meant this. It was an interesting word in ancient times. It referred to somebody taking very valuable goods, sometimes priceless goods, and handing them to someone else so that they would guard them, keep them, not alter them, but do something with them. Taking something of immense value, passing it on to others for safekeeping, for effective use. And trust these things to faithful men. It's the same word in verse 14. Guard to the Holy Spirit, etc., the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul's about to die. He can't be everywhere in the Roman Empire. He can't sit down with every church. So equip men to do this, to entrust to others. Imagine if Paul would have said, well, Tim- well Timothy, just, just strive to be, you know, to get the, the, guy, of the, the guy of the year award in town and don't offend every, anybody, just Say stuff on, just be like a, be like a jellyfish preacher on Sundays. So people pat you on the head and out the door say, good job. Thank you, pastor. I feel better about myself. And then they can go on their merry way. If he only told them to do that, then the baton would not have been passed from generation to generation and we wouldn't have believers today and sound doctrine. So, and trust these things to faithful men. Equip other men. Besides the preaching of the word, this is one of the main things that pastors are to do in their local church. He's telling him to do this in his local church. Pour into men. Find a way to do it. This is our feeble attempt to do this. What, though, is he to entrust for safekeeping? Verse 2, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These things. So notice, there are things and there are the presence of many witnesses. This is to be corporate. Many witnesses means this isn't like 
uh, Lone Ranger Christianity endeavor. We sit shoulder to shoulder and do this together with a fraternal, encouraged. Wow, I look across and I see so-and-so also got up and made it here at six and -and so-and-so did. Do not neglect or think lightly of the ministry of your presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not D-S. You can do that too if you want. But Being present encourages the other men. Whether it's today, especially this morning, GC Church, whatever it is. These things, of course, Paul is not telling Timothy, make up new stuff. He's saying the doctrine, the word of God, you've heard preached from me, Paul, probably 13 letters in the New Testament. Don't change it and trust it. See the difference? Don't alter it. Pass it off. Pass off sound doctrine. And, and discipleship, the things you saw and you heard. I think one way to think of what is to be entrusted is this. A depth of biblical doctrine. Depth of biblical doctrine. And number two, a doing, just to alliterate so it's easier, of biblical discipleship. A depth of biblical, what are we to entrust? A depth of biblical doctrine and a doing of biblical discipleship. A depth of theology. So we're going to study one of the branches of the queen of the sciences this year, eschatology. And a doing of biblical discipleship. What does it mean to invest in other men, to to practically shepherd, to give good counsel, to... to uh, evangelize, to integrate new believers, to come alongside other guys, right? This is more like, I mean, it's all relational. This is more relational. This is more theological, intellectual. All of it is heart, work, sanctification. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good. Good observation, Phil. Right? The faith and the love, the standard of sound words. Good. So, and trust these things, things which you heard in the presence of many witnesses. Hand it off, don't change it. And there's no stop, there's no expiration date on this command to entrust. Keep doing it until the Lord comes back. John Calvin writes here of this verse, quote, Hence we learn how greatly a servant of Christ should labor to maintain and defend the purity of doctrine, and not only while he lives, but as long as his care and labor can extend it. Again, the presence of many witnesses, this is corporate. This is why we get together like this. It's very important to see and be seen. There's an encouragement, just like with Nehemiah when he comes back to to absolutely reproach and destroy Jerusalem. He lines people up around the wall. They worked all night, shoulder to shoulder, fix the wall together, right? Because there's a great encouragement when other guys are doing the task as well, right? I remember one of my one of my daughters who tends to be a little more fearful. Uh, we're we were taking up mountain biking, and she's like, "Dad, I don't want to go ride on that trail." And then and I said, "Well, Willa Stevens rode that trail." And she goes, "Oh, I want to go ride that trail too." I'll go ride it with Willa, you know, 
It's a silly illustration of how the togetherness can help propel us forward and give us a little more fuel in the task. So it is, and much more, in this holy and difficult task of being entrusted with, with these things. Notice, well, to whom? Who is to be doing this? Verse 2, entrust these things to faithful men. Two faithful men. So notice two things. It is to be to men. Men are to be the leaders. Not women. Men are hardwired, hardwired for leadership. Especially spiritual leadership. It's not that the male or gender is more valuable or needs saving less. Quite the contrary, perhaps. It's just this is what God has chosen. Men, number one. Number two, look what the text says. Faithful men. Find faithful men and entrust. Meaning not all men are going to be faithful, tragically, isn't it? Not all men are going to be faithful. The Greek word there for faithful, it means someone who is trustworthy. It means someone who can be handed something of value and they're not going to alter it or get rid of it or say, I don't care about this. They can be handed this and this, and they'll be trustworthy with it. They won't try to change it or get cute and clever with it. Faithful men. So you see the task here. Timothy was to look around in the church and to find faithful men and then entrust these things to them. So my question for us, brothers, is are we striving to be faithful men? What is a faithful man besides the meaning of the word? Trustworthy, reliable, dependable. What else is said about what defines a man as faithful? Look back at the text, verse 2. Faithful men who, so he he's talking about what constitutes a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. There you go, right there. So someone who is going to be able to teach others also. This does not mean... The guy has to be a pastor. Very few men are called to be a pastor. God wants most men to not be for his glory. But nevertheless, a man who is maybe or maybe not a, a pastor, but who will teach others also, who will invest in others, who will come alongside others, who will care about others and look around and say, hey, let's get together. How's it going? How's your walk with the Lord? How can I pray for you? That's what constitutes a faithful man who cares about how other men are doing, who cares about the people around him in these categories, a depth of biblical doctrine and a doing of biblical discipleship. How are we doing in that, brothers? Are we starting somewhere? Are we asking God, help me to be faithful? Help me to invest in others. How would you use me, Lord, and what I'm learning? Maybe it's pouring into an unbeliever or someone in your life who you're not sure if they're a believer and you'd want to invest in them. Whatever it is, all of us can do this. And notice in the text there are four generations, which ensures a passing on. It's a brilliant strategy, isn't it? You have Paul, number one, passing on to Timothy. Timothy, find faithful men, three, who will teach others also, four. 
And that ensures that this thing keeps going from a human standpoint, human strategy. Are we faithful men? Are we trying to be faithful against the cultural tide, brothers? Notice too, Timothy was, he is not, he is not to entrust to a certain category of men. Those men who are not faithful, he's, he's not to really spend a lot of time in them, with them as a pastor. That really clarifies a pastoral duty, doesn't it? And, and other, for other spiritual leaders like yourselves, that kind of clarifies. You're not to be entrusting these things to men who are not faithful. You don't need, you, you don't have to spend the bulk of your time there. It's just, it is what it is. That's implicationally what the text means. It does not mean those men do not matter. It does not mean we do not love those men. It does not mean we don't care for them or we don't pray, pray for them. Of course we do. We pray God helps so-and-so to be faithful, to come into this stream of entrustment. But until then, the bulk of my time needs to be spent elsewhere. Yeah, tell us about that, Phil. Good observation. With, yeah, yeah. Verse twenty-two of uh, twenty twenty-two of Second Timothy. Yeah, good. And also before that, he says, "Cleanse yourself from unuseful vessels." Yeah, exactly. Yep. Explicitly say that the person who's faithful is someone who's pursuing faith, love, and peace with the with a pure heart. Exactly. Heart. Yep. Paul tells Timothy, alongside whom, with whom, what kind of a what kind of men he is to sort of identify with. Other faithful men. Right. So this is God's command: who will be able to teach others also, faithful. We want to be faithful. Be able to teach others. It means someone who is adequate or sufficient, getting qualified to pour into others. Look, you know more than somebody. Or maybe you might know less than somebody, but they don't, they don't apply it. Or they're a devil's advocate or whatever it is. And you can come alongside them. I think faithful, we can add just five quick things to it as we think about this practically. We can add five quick things. Biblical character, striving for biblical character, number one. Number two, so striving for biblical character, number one. Number two, can articulate and defend sound doctrine. It's one thing to be able to articulate it, it's another thing to be able to defend. And look, if you're like, wow, this is way over my head or I'm just not there yet, that's okay. We are where we are. The point, the point is, is not, you know, am I, have I arrived today, but what direction am I going in? Am I setting my compass in that direction? We all need to grow on this, every single one of us. No one's arrived. We stand shoulder to shoulder. But am I setting my, my crosshairs in that direction? So I articulate, defend sound doctrine. Uh, number three, uh, pursue people unforced. I care. Who, who's this new person that's come to church? I want to introduce them. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Pursue people unforced. Number four, accountability. Places himself in, 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 in streams of accountability. I'm accountable to other men. Whatever that, your, your small group, your GC, your DNA, uh, the elders, whatever it is. 
I place myself in a, in a, a sphere of accountability. And number five, attempting to serve in some way. I'm attempting to serve in the kingdom of God. Attempting to serve. Okay, you could add to it. This is just some ways to think of faithful. And everything pushes against us here, which is why we need other faithful men, the presence of many witnesses. Um, we're, we're tired. It's sometimes other guys get on our nerves. Our leaders, our pastors do things that bug us. All that's normal. Um, all the more to strive for it. Every, By the way, it's been observed that every useful person is tired. That the useful, productive people in the world are perpetually tired. A wise man once observed that. It just is what it is, right? So, brothers, may we strive to be faithful men. MacArthur writes that this entrusting refers to the careful, systematic training, forming of men to be leaders who will teach and disciple other believers in the fullness of God's word. Finally, just a couple quick minutes. Number three. Spiritual leadership, number three. And let me say, too, that no one's too young to start. You've made a, you've made a profession of faith in Christ. Samuel, Samuel started as a little boy. His mom, Hannah, brought him to the temple, said, I dedicate him to the Lord. Tabernacle that, in that day. Right? It's never too early. And it's never too late as well. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm too far along. No way. That's the devil's talk. Today. Number three, spiritual leadership requires number three, struggling together. Struggling together as unto the Lord. Struggling together. Struggling together as unto the Lord. Verses three and four. There is a struggle, suffering, a battle. Struggling and battling together as unto the Lord. You talk to Navy SEALs. We had uh, Bill here, you know, a month or two ago in the summer, and he talks about how some of his closest companions are the guys with whom he was fighting in battle. We might not be Navy SEALs here, but there's a there's a tight brotherhood where that, that transcends, you know, hobbies and age and whatever that is really formed as we say, you know what, together we're going to go forward. We're going to stand for the things of the Lord together. And we battle and struggle together. There's really a tight bond that's that's formed in that, right? That's of design. Notice verse 3. He says, suffer hardship with me. The togetherness with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Suffer hardship. One word in the Greek. I mean, join in battling and struggling together. It means linking arms to experience pain. Linking arms to experience pain together. Not because we're like out searching for pain or whatever, but because in the cause, that, that, that will happen. Struggling together. We need each other. The body of Christ, not the body part of Christ. A few notable things about this command. Again, the plural, with me, the brotherhood. Number two, intentionality. The command is to suffer, meaning don't avoid it. 
don't see, well, people are going to not like me in town. If I say that or stand for that, I'm going to back away. No, there's an intentionality to be faithful, and oftentimes the battle will result. Disappointments. Also, the word picture here, notice, how are we to suffer? As a good soldier. This really, the, the metaphor puts color to, to what this looks like. The Greek word good there, it means serviceable, useful, being useful to the Lord. And the soldier, what to think about what, what did Timothy think of when he thought soldier, where this is the, this is the first century, so this is Rome. What did he think about when he heard the term soldier? Just a couple things about life as a Roman soldier to perform their transformation from Roman citizens to soldiers. The select men would have to swear an oath of allegiance. I'm going to be faithful. It was called the swearing of the sacramentum. And it changed the status of a man from civilian to soldier. His identity changed. So it is to be with us. I am the Lord's. I want to be a spiritual leader. I want to be a faithful man to whom things can be entrusted. Now the Roman soldier, he was utterly subject to his general's authority he laid, he thereby laid down any restraints of, restraints of his former life. His actions would be to do the will of the general. He would, he would have to kill anything in sight if his general commanded him to, whether it be a, a barbarian, an animal, whatever. He could only be released from the sacramentum by two things, death or demobilization. Once he took the oath, he would return home to make necessary preparations for his departure. Once all was prepared, he'd gather his weapons, make his way to where men had been ordered to gather. This often would entail quite a journey close to the war and fight. It was always together. There was no one-man army among Roman legions. They were legions. They were together working as a well-oiled machine, every guy playing a critical part. And there was great order, by the way. There was organization. There was care for the fellow soldiers. There was you play your part. I'm going to play my part. No looking down on each other. You know, one guy might have a more respected or sort of respected uh, applauded task. One other guy might be a little bit behind the scenes. It didn't matter. They were all part of the legion together to serve the general and to endure battle with one another, supporting each other, encouraging one another, not, not dividing or being factious or disunified. If one guy struggled more or was in a season of, of, of having a difficult time in battle, he wasn't looked down upon. He was to be encouraged. We're going to do this together. One guy might be more naturally skilled in the art of war than another guy. That was okay. It was all together as a well-oiled machine. 
Dwayne Lifton writes this, quote, a Roman soldier's single-minded purpose, rigorous discipline, and unquestioning obedience to his commanding officer combined to make the figure of a soldier an apt one for a servant of the gospel. Wow, what a challenge. So we're to be, as spiritual leaders, we're to be empowered by the Lord. Number two, we are to engage in this entrustment of a depth of doctrine and a doing of discipleship. And number three, we're to struggle together, unified as men. I see you. I care for you. I pray for you. I'm not going to get easily offended by you. We're all serving the master together so that we might be faithful spiritual leaders and one day hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful slave. May that be our desire, men. May that be our desire as from here we will set sail into a depth, Lord willing, somewhat of a depth of studying the end times that we might be more equipped and entrusted, strengthened. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these brothers. Uh, we confess that we all need strength. I, I, I greatly need strength. This is just convicting for me personally to study this. Lord, we couldn't possibly do this without your grace. Please make up for our great inadequacies and our sins. Um, but I pray every single one of us as men would be encouraged. Even this year, whether we're newer at this, older at this, something in between. May we be encouraged today and beyond even Sunday as we gather for corporate worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Good to see you. See you Sunday, Lord willing.